0: We hope you enjoy this message and that it encourages and inspires you. For more information, head to lifepointwithanee.org.au. Well, we start a new four-week series this week called The Good Work. And this message is for those of you who believe deep down that you're created for more than just the seasons of life. More than just you know, that season of going to high school getting good grades at university, finding or not finding a life spouse, children or no children, building your career or your home or whatever you've put your focus into, more than just saving for your retirement and then just living at your retirement, that you were made for a purpose. You were made for significant contribution to the kingdom of God. This series, is for those of you who want to know what that is, who want to live for a life more than just the here, and now, but the eternal, where the things you do can last forever. But let me just give you guys a warning. Here's the fine print. When God chooses to use you like that, usually, not always, but usually, it comes at great personal cost. you will very likely experience pain, maybe rejection, heartache, failure from time to time, loneliness, doubt, maybe discouragement. There are times where you're going to stand alone. People might misunderstand you, laugh at you, But I want to encourage you that the sacrifices you choose to make to live out that calling and that personal and significant contribution that only you can make will far outweigh any sacrifice you make. Are you still interested? We're actually going to learn from a character from the Old Testament probably one of my favorite Old Testament characters. And you've heard messages and series on this guy before, but he's just an ordinary, ordinary guy. He wasn't a pastor or a priest or a warrior or a king or a leader or a strategic person in the scripture. He was just plain old Nehemiah. Phenomenal story of this man. And what I love about Nehemiah is that we can learn from him because most of us aren't major Country leaders or strategic thinkers. Most of us aren't pastors. Most of us aren't uh, heads of government or CEOs of the companies that we're part of. We're just little old us. And Nehemiah, so little old him, he was just a cup bearer. But that position was so important, and it was so trusted. You can imagine the king is in his palace and he's having strategic chats with his leaders of his armies. And they're thinking about that nation over there that seems to be encroaching closer and that one over there that they've probably got to take on and uh, some strategic defense they've got to move over there. And you've got Nehemiah coming in and out of the, the palace strategic war room hearing all this conversation. So Nehemiah has to be a person that can be trusted, like He's got to be confidential. He can't let this stuff out of the bag. And on top of that, the role of being a cupbearer, you've heard it before, he gets to drink the wine before the king does to make sure there's not poison. Someone wants to take him out. There's always someone who wants to you know, knock the king off the perch. And Nehemiah has to be the kind of guy that he's not going to be the one who's going to put something, something in that wine. Who's not going to be manipulated or bored out in order to take out the king. So the king has this huge amount of trust in this guy, Nehemiah. But to be honest, Nehemiah is still nobody. He's just the cupbearer to the king. And Nehemiah gets a visit from his brothers who live 1,600 kilometers away back in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah inquires of his brothers, How's home? How's mum and dad? How's it all going back there in Jerusalem? And this is what his brother says. Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also, also about Jerusalem. Now, that's really important that he asks of them. He's interested, and obviously his family, he's interested in the nation, But remember 140 years ago uh, in 586 BC, Israel was annihilated. Nebuchadnezzar came in, Babylonians came in, wiped out the nation, burnt the gates of the city, the walls came tumbling down, the temple that was so beautiful was torn apart, all the riches out of the city were gutted, There was nothing left in the city of any worth. It was all taken back to Babylon along with all its people. There's just this small, small amount of people left back in the city. So it was a mess. So Nehemiah wasn't just really inquiring how his mum and dad, he was after how the people. Because a couple of decades after that, the people were allowed to come back, back into the city. And everyone's hope is that when they come back into the city, they'll put up the gates again, they'll rebuild the walls, the temple will go up, the economy starts turning, the cogs start turning around and everyone gets jobs and everything's hunky-dory again. So tell me, brothers, you've been back in the city for a while, how's it going? Is Jerusalem back up and going again? Verse three, again, if you look at your version app under menu, uh, more events, you'll see all the notes that are under there. He says Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. In other words, there's no protection. Israel is in a really really bad place. Anyone, any other nation can come in through those burnt gates. And do it all over again. Any fox can just jump over those walls and take them on. There's, there's no economy. There's no jobs. There's no hope. There's no direction. There's no leadership. Nehemiah, I've got to tell you, says Hannah and I, it's awful. It's in a bad place. You don't want to be there. We wish things could be better. And what does Nehemiah do when he hears about his beloved? country. When I heard these things, says Nehemiah, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. When he hears about his city, he just bawls. He sobs. He puts aside time to mourn, to stay in that place of sadness. He stops eating as a sign of um, being together with his people, but also to push into God. God, what is this? What's happening? Why is my country still a mess? In my mid-20s, I used to do a, uh, a camp in country Victoria on a farm just for boys. And I used to do the talks at this four or five day camp. And we used to sleep in the shearing quarters and help with the shearers in the shed and on the machinery and help around the farm. And then I used to give this input in the mornings after breakfast. And there was one boy who came year after year that I happened to do it. And on one of the final years, we had a quiet moment after dinner by ourselves, just sitting out in the deck of the shearers' quarters. And he opened up about the stuff that had happened in his life previous to this point. And he was, a, he was a farmer's son, so he was a pretty tough kid, but the, just the tears started to roll as he shared his story. Well, I couldn't do much except listen. Well, a little bit later after the camp, he called me. And he says, look, I've asked my parents if I could come down and spend time with your family in Sydney. Would you mind if I came for a weekend? So he did. And from that time, he started just infrequently throughout the year coming to our home and just spending time in our home. I remember one particular time, uh, I got up in the middle of the night and I heard this crying. And it was coming from his room. and I just knocked gently. There was no response, but I could hear the crying. and I just opened the door and in a fetal position in the middle of the floor, there he was sobbing in the middle of the night as he was trying to wrestle with his story up until that point. I just sat down and I wept next to him. My heart broke for him. And the only response out of that brokenness for seeing what he and hearing what he experienced was for me to weep alongside him. If you want to participate in the significant thing that God has for you, that may change your life or change the world, it often starts with a broken heart over something. It starts with an inner or an outer weeping of something that's not right. It's not the way it should be. Something has to shift. They shouldn't be treated like that. No one has to live like that. They shouldn't experience that. That inequality shouldn't be there. They should be able to do that. They should be able to go there. Go there. Don't, why don't they have that? Why haven't they got that opportunity? And your heart breaks for the condition or the circumstances or the plight of that person. That brokenness is where God starts the journey of you and I stepping into the purpose and the significance for what He has for us. Can I suggest that the degree to which your heart breaks for the circumstances and plight of others is the degree to which you or I understand and have embodied the heart of God. Let me say it again. The degree to which you or I degree which you or I have I need to read it because I just forgot it. I want the degree to which your heart breaks for the plight and the situation of others is the degree to which you have understood and embodied the heart of Jesus. Because if you go through our scripture, time and time again, that's what you see happening. You see someone's heart breaking and then God using them. God's heart breaking over Israel. Do you think God wanted Israel to be in captivity in Babylon forever? No. His heart was always to bring them back. His heart was broken for Israel. He needed to do something with them. His heart was broken for the marginalized in the New Testament. His heart was broken for the tax collectors. His heart was broken for the people on the side of the hill as his boat washed up. My heart's broken. That's where God's heart starts, and then something happens, and that's where your heart must start if you want to participate in what God has for you. Is your heart broken for anything? When our heart breaks, we get motivated. We get motivated to do something. What are you weeping over? That's the starting point. It says this for some days in verse four, I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. I love what Craig Rochelle says. If it's big enough to cry about, it's big enough to pray about. Let me read you Nehemiah's prayer that he prays after he gets the news about his beloved country. Lord, the God of heaven, We've acted very wickedly toward you. We've not obeyed your commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses when you said, if you're unfaithful, I'm going to scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, that even your exiled people at the farthest horizon, I'm going to gather them from there and I'm going to bring them to a place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people who you redeemed by the great strength in your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this servant and the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of the king. <laughs> what I love about Nehemiah, and you'll see it throughout his book, is he prays. We at least are privy to 12 prayers of Nehemiah. He gets the news and he just, oh, I'm going to get into the prayer house. I'm going to start praying. And then 12 other times throughout, we see his prayer. Now, if he has recorded 12 prayers, There's probably hundreds of prayers that aren't recorded. But from the moment he gets the broken heart and he decides that something must be done, he starts to go into prayer and say, God, can you do something? And I think what prayer does is it realigns our faith with whose task it is to make the impossible happen. It's easy when you get a broken heart to get all overwhelmed about, well, I can't do anything about that. Oh, I, can't, I can't fix that. It's huge. That it requires like the economy of a nation to fix that. And I, I can't build that. Like, where am I going to get builders from? Where am I going to have resources to do that? And I can't lead that. Well, that's not what Nehemiah is doing. He's not worrying about the end game. What he's worrying about is, God, I'm going to realign myself with the fact that you are powerful enough to do whatever you want. And all you're asking me to do is start with a broken heart. God, you're powerful. God, you're the promise keeper. God, you listen when I pray. God, you forgive my sin. God, I know the expectations you have of your, fo- your, your followers. I'm going to lean in and listen to you, and I'm going to ask you to do something. But I'm going to center myself to realize it's not me who's going to accomplish it, it's you. So I'm going to pray. There's nothing magical about this prayer. It's not handed down from generation to generation through Nehemiah's family. Here's, here it is. Here's the key. Here's the code to get God to do what you want. It's just humble, cupbearer Nehemiah pouring his heart out saying, God, I'm just realign myself right now. Israel's in ruins and my heart's broken for it and I want to do something about it. Really, you're the only one who can do something about it. So I realign myself with you. And I just ask right now, first step, can you give me favor? Wanna go chat to my boss? <laughs> just give me favor, wanna to chat to my boss. I mean, you can flick through and go, okay, so where's the rest of it? Where's the rest of the, the strategy in there? Has he thought it through? Has he like written it all out? What, what, what's he gonna do? No, he's gonna to talk to his boss. That's it. He doesn't even know what he's gonna say. Just give me favor when I go talk to my boss. And that's the third thing. Start with a broken heart. Sow into prayer all throughout the journey. But also, at some point, you've got to do something. At some point, you've got to take that first step toward God being able to use you to make the change. So what it says in chapter 2, verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, that's... Nehemiah bringing the wine. I took the wine and I gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? Can't be anything but sadness of heart. I was so scared. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And then he prays again and then he says, I prayed to God in heaven and I answered the king if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. I love that. He's chatting to the king The king's noticed that he's sad, which you don't do, in front of the king because that can have you killed. But he can't hide his sadness. But he's earned enough kudos with the king that he's just reeled before the king and says, what's up, buddy? He says, my city's in ruins. It's a mess. And then he takes a breath. And as he prays, that's where he's about to launch. Right in that moment was the moment of, Will I or won't I? Will I step into being the change or will I stay here where it's safe and secure? Will I risk everything and ask the boss to take not just a couple of days off, but take months off to go back home? Or will I just stay in the comfort zone? Uh, have you ever stood at the edge of a, like a, a water jump You know, like a cliff. And below you about five, six, depends how courageous you are, ten meters, there's this this water. And you put your toes right on the edge, and there's a bit of a sway happening. And through your head is all the will-eyes, or won't-eyes. Reasons why you shouldn't. I'm going to break my legs, my wings are going to fall off, I'm not going to come back up, I'm going to hit underneath. Whatever it is, all the reasons why you shouldn't. The scariest abseil I've ever done is this abseil. It's Mount Banks in the Blue Mountains in New South Wales. And Mount Banks, that's, the abseil is 300 metres. Now, when you go to Mount Banks, you've got about a 60-metre rope. And what you do is you loop it over so you've got a 30-metre rope, and then you pull it down, hook it up, pull it down. Ten abseils all the way down. I remember there was four of us at the top of it, my brother Marty, myself, uh, Bob, and there was my friend Mark. And Marty's the courageous one. He's two above-me brothers, so he says, yeah, I'll go first. I said, I'm going, there's no way I'm going first. And so we hook the rope up, Marty goes over, he's full of courageous, and he's going to land on a ledge that's about that wide. He's going to hook himself on, take himself off the rope, and then I'm going to get on the rope. And so I'm up the top and I put myself on the rope and I do myself up and say, Bob, can you just check? <laughs> Bob comes over. Mark, could you just... Mark comes over. Because there's that moment where you're on the middle of your feet with the rope here. And then you go, you kind of edge the edge and then you rock back on the back of your feet. So the weight transfers from you being in control and holding your weight to the rope holding your weight. So you're like this, and then you rock back until your feet are 90 degrees to the cliff, and the rope has all your weight. And when you've got 300 meters below you, and there's a chance that you could end up at the bottom faster than you expected, There's a lot of will-eyes or won't-eyes. But there is that moment where you have to transfer the trust from you to the rope. And so it is when it comes to things of the kingdom of God, when He's calling you and wooing you into participating in something significant that He has for you, there's a moment of transition of weight, of faith from the rope to God. The moment where you have to make a decision. Will I, in the middle of this breath, because the next word I say is the transition. The next phone call I make is the transition. The next conversation I have with that person. The next time I go into the office. The next time I see my kids. The next time I apply for study. The next time I apply for that job, the next time I talk to my boss, the next time I chat to my spouse, the next time I, whatever it is, there's a moment where you need to decide, will I rock back and sit in His courage, in His power, or will I stay flat-footed right now? And all God is doing, says, come on. I mean, I've got Bob and Mark there. And say, AB, you can do this. AB, you can do this. God's just saying, you can do it. You can do it. Your heart's broken. You've prayed in between breaths. You can do it. Rock back and... That's where you get the stories of the power of God. It's not usually when we're flat-footed in our comfort zone that we hear the power of God. It's when someone decides to rock back onto the rope and fully trust God for the next step. Nehemiah has no idea. How's a cupbearer going to go to a city and rebuild it? Well, there's already 50,000 people there. Why haven't any of those stood up and rebuilt it? Why would a cupbearer have any more success than any of those people in rebuilding a wall? Like, how's he going to coordinate the people? How's he going to inspire them? Where are the resources going to come from? How's he going to get the wood? Like, it takes a lot of wood. Where's he going to get the stones from? Like, seriously, he's a cupbearer. He's not worried. What he's worried about is transferring from the rope to faith. God, this is your gig. You'll do the rest. I'll just rock. Where is God asking you right now to transition from the rope to him? What is it? What I get excited about is when I think of 300 transitional stories here happening at once, another 100 happening online, of God whispering to each one of us going, come on, Transition. Trust me. Be part of the purpose and the significant thing I have for you. Just trust me. There could be 400 stories unfolding right here in this community. If all of us listen to the brokenness that's within, begin to get our knees and pray into what it is that God's breaking in us. And then as we take that breath, God, give me the words and start to abseil. If you like, if you text that prayer right now or if you have something you'd like us to pray about, Phil and uh, Kathy are going to come up and they're going to pray for all those prayer needs that you've been texting in. But if you have one about a step of faith, why don't you text that in? You've got about, Two minutes before that email is sent straight to Phil and Kathy, and they're going to start praying. So if you want some prayer behind you as you step out in faith, text it now. He's going to pray for it. And let's over the next 12 months see the stories that unfold from the Nehemiahs, ordinary people like you and me, trusting God for what he's got for us. So Father, I pray for this group of people here and online who I know, because we're human and we're your creation, you have placed in us unctions and yearnings and longings for significance. And we know that part of that is being part of your plan, part of your purpose, part of the things that you are doing. So Lord, I pray through your Holy Spirit you might speak to us as a church and individuals, woo us, lead us, give us faith and courage, give us eyes that see and hearts that break, place people around us, might encourage us and spur us on. For your glory's sake, do something special in us and something special through us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.